I had a friend when I was, uh, my wife and I were just getting started on our marriage, and we, we, uh, we, we had this couple that we were really friend, we were good friends with, and we were visiting one, one day, and he, he said to me, uh, you know, I, I once threw away a million dollars. And, uh, no, no, you didn't. And really, he did. This is how it worked. He used to work as a sales clerk in a hardware store. And um, he's a creature of routine, kind of a meek, meek fella. And uh, so every time he'd get his 15-minute break during his workday, he would go back to the employee rest area to the vending machine, and he would buy one bag of M&M's. That's what he would do every day. He would go back during his break, and he would buy one bag of M&M's. And the way he would eat his M&M's, he told us, is he'd kind of sit there by himself at his table and kind of open the bag and eat them one at a time. Just, it was his time to relax and get away. I used to be in a hard, I know this, this feeling of just get away. And he ate his one at a time. He just ate his M&M's while he enjoyed his 15-minute break. And he did this day after day after day. Every single day, he was a, he was a creature of habit. And there was this day that he was eating his M&M's, and lo and behold, one of his M&M's was a gray M&M. It was gray. And he remarked, "How would I? What? What an odd M&M! <laughs> that it would be gray." And he looked at it, and then he popped it in his mouth, and he finished his break and went about his merry way. And next day he eats his M&Ms. The next day he eats his M&Ms. The next day he eats his M&Ms. And the next day, when he's eating his M&Ms, he's holding the M&M package, and he's his attention gets fixed on the back of the M&M package, which announces a million-dollar sweepstakes. That the person who has the package of M&Ms with a gray M&M would win a million dollars. He threw away a million dollars. It's hard to even kind of laugh with him, you know. There's still pain. But... (laughs) But I did laugh, of course, because I'll never pass up the opportunity to laugh at someone else. Uh, but this is, this is just this odd irony in, in the fact that sometimes we, can't, we just don't appreciate the value of what we've been given in light of just the little things around us that have caught our attention. Which I think has something to do with, with uh, this morning. We're going to look at... Uh, uh, the way the gospel was brought into two different cities and the way it was received in two different ways and how some people recognized what was brought to them and some, some failed to kind of appreciate that. Let me read uh, the 17th chapter. I'm going to read the account of, of Thessalonica. So 17 verses 1 to 9. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. 
But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. I'll give you a little bit of summary here on the text. Um, last Sunday they were in uh, Philippi. And so they're coming to Thessalonica from the city of Philippi. They were asked very kindly to please leave Philippi. Um, and after they had kind of met with the, the church meeting in the home of Lydia, they set out on their way. And they, they pass up a few. They go actually, Philippi was the regional capital of that district of Macedonia. They actually pass up a couple cities and go to the next district of Macedonia, the next capital city, which was Thessalonica. And they come into, into this city. And as was the custom, Paul begins to preach in the synagogues, like it says. And what we see here in the text is we see acceptance and we see this rise in jealousy. It says some Jews believed, as did a large number of Greeks and not a few prominent women. And then it says, but then there were some Jews who became jealous. And this jealousy evolves into a spirit of resistance. And they make two accusations. The first accusation is they're turning the world upside down. Some of your translations may actually say that. They're turning the world upside down, which... If they only knew how true it was, right? But they say that, and then the next accusation they made, which is, they are defying Caesar by proclaiming Jesus Christ as king, if they only knew how true that was. All they were really just trying to do is stir up a crowd and kind of whip up the city, and it works. Um, the, the leaders of the city, there were five leaders in the city of Thessalonica, they they require that Jason post bail. Um, and the, as best as we can make sense of that, it appears as though Paul was never allowed to go back into the city of Thessalonica. It appears as though in posting bail here, what, what Jason and the others are doing is fronting up money saying, they'll leave and they won't come back. That's what's happening. In the second chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is to this very church, Paul says, I wish so much that I could come in person, but I can't because Satan has blocked my way. And that's being written, I think, months after this. In the third chapter of that letter, and I encourage it's a short letter, I would encourage you to read it. In the very third chapter of that letter, it says this, but they're going to leave uh, Timothy in a second in the city of Berea. But in the third chapter of Thessalonians, it says, Timothy has just showed up with us. And he's given us report of what's going on. And in the account of Acts, Timothy meets them again in the city of Corinth. So this letter, 1 Thessalonians, is being written three weeks, four weeks, a month after this occasion here in the city. So essentially, uh, Paul has three Sabbaths, Sabbath days in the city of Thessalonica. And he manages to plant an effective church which is humbling. Let's keep reading. Let's read about Berea. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. 
Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now, Berea is different. I I mean, it's different what happens. The pattern starts off the same. Again, Paul goes into the synagogue. There's part of my spirit that says, when is he going to give up? on going into the synagogue. But he again, he goes into the synagogue, and this is why he doesn't give up on the synagogue, because here in Berea, his reception is much different. It says they were not like those in Thessalonica. They were of more noble character, it says. And it says this, it describes it. They say it receives his message with eagerness, is the first phrase. And the second one is, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what he said was true. There's, there's two ideas that are kind of uh, differentiated from Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, he has uh, three Saturdays, three Sabbath days that he actually has the chance to argue the word and some believe. That's the, that's the words there. He argued and proved. There's almost this apologetic spirit that's coming out of Thessalonica. In Berea, he, ha- he shares the gospel and they receive it with eagerness and they don't say, oh, we'll come, we can't wait to hear you next Saturday. Every day they're gathering back. It's, it's whipped up in the church, kind of a new excitement to examine the word and to allow the word to validate. And the result is, in fact, different. In Thessalonica, it says some Jews believed, as did many Greeks and a few prominent women. In Berea, it says many Jews believed, and many Greeks, both men and women. So the re- the difference is significant. The, the church receives him. There's no jealousy in the church of Berea. Even when there's trouble stirred up. Did you know where the trouble came from? Did it come from Berea? No, it came from Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica that were jealous, they heard, they came all the way down. And did they stir up trouble in the synagogue? Is it Jewish trouble they're stirring up? No, they stirred up trouble in the city again. The Jews are using a secular argument to push, because, you know, outside of Jerusalem, who cares? Who cares who the Jewish Messiah is? That, that's not. So the Jews are using a secular conversation to say he's going to cause unrest, and he's, he's saying treasonous things against Caesar. They're using that to herd Paul and Silas out of the cities. But there's no jealousy here in Berea. It says they are of more noble character. One translator equates that to they're more open-minded. Now I want to talk about this jealousy um, because I think it's easy for us to say in Thessalonica they were jealous and in Berea they're high-minded or of more, more noble character. But I don't think those are operating on the same plane. I think the jealousy that you're reading of in Thessalonica is a secondary effect 
When they're jealous, when they get jealous in Thessalonica, it's not, that's not their first sensation. They're getting jealous because Greeks and people are coming to the faith. They're getting jealous because their synagogue and their world is being turned upside down, and they're not happy about it. But that's not, that's not the first rejection of the gospel. They've already rejected the gospel. Nobody hears what Jesus Christ has done for them and gets jealous. I've never seen that response. Jesus died for your sins. <laughs> Jealous. It can't even work. That, my mind just bumps against it. The jealousy is not the first sin. The jealousy is one of these secondary sins. It, you have kids, right? Young child needs a nap, hasn't got a nap, so they're whiny and complainy and they're boohooey and they're frustrating and nobody likes them, right? And when that happens, somebody can amen this, then everything that happens to them that's even negative in the mildest sense puts them over the edge, right? They trip. Ah! Right? They they cry. And we know as parents, it wasn't the trip. It wasn't the fact that they bonked their nose or they bit their tongue or this. We know they need a nap. That's what they need. The, the, The primary cause of all the sadness is the fatigue. Or, or something like that. This is, I think, similar in the case. Jealousy here in Thessalonica has come down the road, but these Jews have already rejected the Messiah. They've rejected the Messiah. The church around them is not rejected it, and they are becoming jealous. I'm doing this to avoid making some simplistic connections that are not, in fact, connections. It is not Thessalonica was jealous and Berea was of more noble character. It's Berea was of more noble character. And I want us to explore, what does it mean? I don't even know if the word noble is that useful for us. Uh, Not because there isn't nobility today, but we just don't use it often. I want us to kind of examine what does it mean to have more a more noble kind of approach to this, that when you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul preached it, what does it mean to kind of receive it uh, with more noble character? So let's look. I want us to think a little bit about what Paul is preaching. Let's look very carefully in, in 17 just to see exactly what he was preaching. Look at the second verse. It says, As his custom was, Paul went to the synagogue on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Christ meaning Savior. Christ means Savior, means Messiah. Those are just synonymous concepts. So he's arguing and proving from the Word, from the Old Testament Scriptures. He's not saying, look in the Gospel of John. He was crucified. He's arguing from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messianic hope, the Messiah hope of Israel, implies in itself that the Savior will in fact be crucified and raised again. That's what he's arguing. That's what all the Scriptures you heard this morning leading up to the message. All of them were Old Testament words that were hinting and pointing at a crucified and resurrected Messiah. And I want us to think about the message as it was being preached in the synagogue. Because remember, it's important to remember that Paul is preaching in a God-fearing synagogue. 
he's not, this is not an alpha meeting that he's having where you have to start at, at zero and kind of work who is God, why do we read the Bible, is there such thing as truth. He's not starting there. Everybody who is in the synagogue worships the same God. Everybody who is in the synagogue has the same hope that a Messiah will one day come. Everybody in the synagogue believes that the God that they worship is a promise maker and a promise keeper. That his words are kept in one place and one place alone. And those are in the Holy Scriptures. He's starting. That's why he starts in the synagogue. What a great starting point. Nobody there is going to argue like, oh yeah, but that was Moses. He's at this great starting point. Paul's job is to take everything that they agree upon and say, the Messiah that we are waiting for had to be crucified and resurrected. So let's think about this. What does the death and resurrection of the Messiah imply? This is what Paul was arguing for. Think of it this way. What what is the implication of a Messiah... Dying at the hands of men. What's the implication of a Messiah, someone who's claiming to be the Savior, at the very least of the Hebrew people, of the Messiah coming and perishing at the hands of men and then being raised by God? But at the the, the crux of this, dying at at the hands of men, to, to a Jew or to regular people, you have two options. He's either not the Messiah. What kind of Messiah dies at the hands of men? He's either a failure or the death of this Messiah is curiously important. Either Jesus' death means he is not the Messiah or his death is curiously central to his claim of being the Messiah. What else did he do that matters? He fed people. They're all dead and you don't know them. Right? That in the grand scheme of history, feeding 5,000 people is inconsequential. Alexander the Great had more impact than that. Hitler had more impact than that. I could name you a hundred people who have had more impact than that in the 20th century. He healed a few people, turned water to wine. At some level, big whoop. I mean, it's miraculous, I agree, but it has no lasting and significance. It doesn't change the way the world, the world still spins on its axis, just like it did the day before. There really is no substantive significance to a Messiah claim of Jesus Christ, apart from the fact that maybe his death and resurrection is curiously central to his claim of being the Messiah. I think Paul would start there. Is death failure? What is the implication of a crucified Messiah in the only, listen, in a faith, the only moral religion in the Roman Empire? What is the implications of a Messiah having died in what was the only moral religion in the entire Roman Empire. Nowhere else in the Roman Empire is a moral religion being propagated except in Judaism. And in Judaism, what is the implication of a dying Messiah? Because if you look at the Jewish faith, not only is it moral, it is essentially moral. 
It's not moral in the sense of like every now and then when you're reading the book, you come across an Aesop's fable that uh, that's why you don't do this. It isn't haphazardly moral. It's focused and essentially moral. The whole Old Testament scriptures are swinging around the idea of sin. How did it enter? How does it manifest? How does it grow? And how does God interrupt and show his sovereign power over it? That's the entire kind of swing of the Old Testament is around this question of evil. And in the Old Testament, deep, deep embedded in the Jewish faith is a knowledge that sin is directly equated to death. The book starts that way. It's before Abraham. This is not a Jewish question. This is a religious question. The Bible starts saying the reason for death is sin. If it dies, it's because of sin. Everything that dies is because of sin. The the notion of death in the human mind has to do with sin. So what are the implications of a Messiah that comes and dies? In the only moral religion in the entire Roman Empire. The only religion that actually cares about truth and falsehood. And righteousness and unrighteousness. Zeus doesn't care about that. Apollos doesn't care about that. Saturn doesn't care about that. Nobody cares about that but the Jews. What are the implications of a crucified Messiah? A claim claim to say you're the Messiah is a claim of saying, I have come with the ability and purpose to save. So what are the implications of a crucified Messiah entering the only moral religion in the entire Roman Empire who has over a thousand years of ritual, ceremony, and belief system built around the sacrificial system? What's the implications? That for a thousand years, over a thousand years, since 1400 BC, that the, the, the Jewish Religion has had in it it's a centralized idea that sin equals death. And that in order to avoid the judgment of God, something has to die in our place. A body has to be given and blood has to be shed. For over a thousand years, in the only moral religion in the entire Roman Empire, they have been practicing the act of accepting forgiveness through the death of something else. They have been handing something over to have it cut and to have the blood shed and the body given in order that they might not receive the full judgment from God because God is essentially moral. What is the implications of a Messiah coming and claiming to be the Savior of the world and then dying, shedding blood, and then being resurrected? What are the implications of a Messiah who is preceded by a man who in every way, both shape, form, and purpose, is like the prophet Elijah? This is fun to think about. In every way, John the Baptist, who precedes Christ and calls Christ in and recognizes Christ and appoints Christ and baptizes Christ, in every way, he's like Elijah, who all of the Jews knew and respect. In fact, they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? Are you the Holy One? And in every way, he's like Elijah. Elijah, who was unconcerned with God's people's situational well-being. Absolutely unconcerned with it. 
You know what Elijah said to his own people? Until I say so, it won't rain. And years went by and people died. They went on a manhunt for Elijah to catch him. I imagine to twist his arm so he would yell, rain. (laughs) Elijah was unconcerned. Elijah had one message and one message only. Repent to the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, repent. The day of the Lord is coming, repent. He's unconcerned about who has what and, and what country is Aram attacking or if it's the Phoenicians attacking. He didn't care about any of that. He came with the message, repent before the Lord. On Mount Carmel, what's the question of Elijah? Elijah's question is, on this day, which God will you worship, Baal or Yahweh? That is the message of Elijah and that was the message of John the Baptist. What are the implications of a Messiah being immediately preceded and announced by someone who says, the purpose is repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The message that Paul brought to the churches is that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead is a message that is absolutely and unequivocally saying that the Messiah who is the Christ who is the Nazarene known as Jesus, has come to give himself up so that his, his blood might cover the sins of the world. That is the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It hinges on the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's the sacrifice and the forgiveness for sins. His salvation is a soul salvation and an eternal salvation. It is not a salvation that, that comes to us in an earthly way to make hard easy or to make poor rich or to make unhealthy healthy. It's, it's not essentially about those things. It's about taking who we are and making who we are acceptable to a holy God. And the people of Berea, when they heard this, They said, yes. You want to know what it is to be of more noble character? That's it. When you hear this, when the message is brought to you and is said that the purpose of the Messiah of this world was to cover up your sins so that you might enjoy the holy communion of God and man once again, do you say yes? That's the question. That's what it says when they're of more noble character. They hear this message and it says they receive it with eagerness. Yes, yes, we like that. They receive it with eagerness. And then day after day, they pour over the word and they say, here it is again. Here it is again. Look, it's in Isaiah and it's in Zechariah and it's in Hosea and it's here and it's here. And the psalmist doesn't write about it once, not twice. The psalmist writes about it over and over and over again. And in Genesis 3, it's spoken of. And they look at the promises of Abraham and they see things and they begin to just to take it all in and say, yes, this is the Messiah. This is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to receive the word of God with more noble character. So why not Thessalonica? Why in Thessalonica only did some receive? Why did they reject 
the truth and eventually expel the messenger. I mean, they're waiting for a Messiah, aren't they? They're like us. They know the stories. They're waiting for the Messiah. They have an expectation. Paul's not arguing from some other writing. He's arguing well from the written scriptures. I think it's because they want a different Messiah. That it seems lame to them that all of this religious commotion will be made over my sin. I think what what people want, and I don't think this is just in Thessalonica, I think this is in Hocassum. I think this is everywhere. I think we're waiting for a Messiah, but the Messiah that we want is a Messiah that will pay our mortgage. The Messiah that we want is a Messiah that will make us look good or get us into the right college or get us the right girl or fix our marriage or make me feel better or cure that disease. We want all of these messiahs. You know, you know what those things are? Those are like stupid little gray M&Ms and a pack that's worth a million dollars. And you're missing the treasure for this pathetic little piece of chocolate. God comes down to save your soul, to bring you into unity with the Holy Father. And your first question is, can you help me out of debt? Now listen, I'm not saying that's not a problem. I'm not saying it doesn't sit on your soul. I'm saying what Messiah satisfies you? What do you really want? Do you really grasp Do you really grasp with kind of an eagerness of yes what you gain through the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Or are you like someone on a hillside saying, I hope he's going to make a meal today? You know, I wonder, I know you know the right academic answer, but I wonder if we had a survey who, whether we'd have more people on the hillside to be fed by fishes and loaves or more people watching the stone get rolled over. I'd hope that we would all show up to see the stone rolled away. Because then we could say, yes, that's what I'm talking about. We want a money Messiah. We want a dream Messiah. We want an other people Messiah. Why won't I get a Messiah that fixes her? That's what we want. It's a Messiah that fixes the other people. We want a health Messiah. We get all of these things in time. This is what it means to have more noble character. More noble character is the eagerness to receive the Messiah that God has given us. It's the willingness to replace our earthly desire for joy with God's eternal offering of peace. It's having more noble character is the willingness to say, What I wanted was less than what you're giving me. I desire with eagerness that which you offer. I'm not saying that it's wrong to want health. I want health. I'm not saying it's wrong to want to be out of debt. I want to be out of debt. I'm not saying that it's wrong to want kids that are going to grow up and make smart decisions. We all want these things. They're all good. They're all pointing us to a deeper desire of going, I want to be in a place and in a state of being where there is no crying No injury, no shedding of tears, no sadness. That's what I want to be in, and that's what Christ promises us.
not every Sunday. Uh, some Sundays, every Sunday, I'd like to think that you're brought to a place of decision. To have the word read is to bring you to a place of decision. But not every Sunday do we, we take a time to formally say, who are you in Jesus Christ? And I just want to offer that this morning, that maybe, maybe some of you have just been waiting to hear the question, are you or are you not a follower of the Messiah who is Jesus the Christ? Are you or are you not? Are you, are you willing? I'm not saying are you right now instantaneously completely satisfied with being forgiven of your sins only? You should be. I'm not saying that. I'm saying are you willing to seek satisfaction in the forgiveness of your sins? To embrace that. And then to allow the Lord in hard ways and in kind ways and in smooth ways to work his will out over the terrain of the rest of your life. 